All right, grab your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of John. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to, to give you one. Down the middle column of seats are a couple of Bibles stacked on top of each other. And uh, if someone in your row needs one, just go ahead and grab it and pass it on down to them. The Gospel of John is going to be around the 500s, 530, maybe 580. I, don't, I didn't look. I should have looked, but I didn't. I'm sorry. Look in the table. You know the Bibles have table of contents? They, they do. So seriously, it's, it's, it's not wrong with looking at the table of contents. We're going to be in John chapter 6. We've been in John chapter 6 for, I think, four weeks. We're going to finish it out uh, this week. We're going to start in verse 60 and go all the way through verse 71. John chapter 6, verses 60 through 71. Let's read together. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for a beautiful day after a kind of a monsoon day yesterday. Thank you for helping us survive it. We thank you for the water that replenishes our earth. And actually, if we could, we'd ask you to ship some of this water to the West Coast so they could um, partake of it as well. As we dive into your word today, God, we pray that you would give us eyes to hear and eyes to see and ears to hear all that you have for us. God, we pray that we would see your gospel, that it would be good news to us, that it would would challenge, God, that it would uh, refocus what we have previously believed and we would see Jesus in a new light. God, help us to believe. We pray that in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Every, uh, every, amen. I was looking at my notes, starting to talk, and I hadn't even finished my prayer yet. All right, so this is going to sound simplistic. Every one of us falls into one of four categories. Let me show you a slide. This is, uh, this is graduate level PowerPoint here. Graduate level, you got to be at least in PowerPoint for a day or two before you can build a slide like this. Every one of us falls into one of these categories. Either we are believers in Jesus or we're not. Either we've been confronted in regards to who Jesus is and what he's come to do, or we have not. Okay, and of course, in the simplicity of my PowerPoint keynote making skills, you don't see the overlap, but all of these overlap in various ways. I'm going to talk about two two different areas of these. First, I'm going to talk about those in the world that have not been confronted, have not been confronted with who Jesus is. There are people who have not been confronted with Jesus. And this is a bold statement, but this is most Americans. There are plenty of people that go to church. There are plenty of people that perhaps even pick up a Bible. They know about church. They might even claim to be Christians. But in all that they've done, most Americans have not truly been confronted with who Jesus is. And they've not been forced to make a decision in regards to following him or not following him. That's most Americans. There's a chaplain at a Christian university, and you all know this, but most students, not most, some, a lot of students that go to Christian schools aren't Christians. I mean, that's that, the misnomer is that you've got to be a Christian to go to a Christian school. That, that's not actually true. And so in, the, in this particular school, uh, one, of the, one of the policies was that because it was a Christian school, all the kids had to pass through and have a one-on-one face-to-face discussion with the chaplain at some point in their, their, their freshman year. And in this encounter, the, the, 
the chaplain would uh, basically tell them some of the, the rules about you got to go to chapel and this is what's expected of you uh, from a moral perspective and how you serve as students in, in the university because we're a Christian university. And in the midst of them talking, most of the, the students that were not Christians would interrupt the chaplain and say, well, chaplain, let me tell you right up front. So, so I'm not a Christian. And just to let you know, so you, there won't be any expectation, I'm probably not going to come to chapel because I don't, I don't believe in, in God. And, and so the chaplain would say, well, uh, okay, well, why don't you tell me about this God that you don't believe in? And so they would begin to tell them about the God they don't believe in. And they would say stuff like this. Well, I don't believe in a God that, that, that seems so far away. I don't believe in a God who is mean and judges people. I don't believe in a God who would arbitrarily send people to hell. And the chaplain would say, oh, my gosh, I'm glad you said that, because uh, I thought you were going to say something like cultish or devil worship or something like that. Well, tell you what, I don't believe in a God like that either. But can I tell you about the God that I do believe in? about the God that it reveals himself through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Can I tell you about this God? Can you see what this chaplain was trying to do? He was, he was trying to confront these young kids who had inclinations, who had ideas about who God was, but really had never been confronted with the, the true Jesus. They had thoughts about what church was like and what people who worshiped and, and, and religion was like. And they dismissed who that God was because of what they thought they knew, never being confronted with Jesus such to a point that they had to make a, a decision about him. And, you know, there's a small crowd in here today. Perhaps you are like that as well. You might have gone to church. You might have actually opened your Bible. You might have prayed a prayer. You might have been around religious people all your life, grown up in a family that uh, that believed in Christianity. But perhaps you may be sitting here even today and have never been confronted with with who Jesus is, what he's come to do, not in the world per se, but in, in your own life, such that you have been forced to make a decision to uh, for him or or against him. So that's the first category. There's another category. There's a category of people who actually can uh, profess to believe, yet never have been confronted. Another story. So I grew up in the South. Um, the South is really eight states. You can extend it a little bit first. I mean, I, I, most Texans consider themselves from the South as well, but Texans aren't really from the South. They just got Southern accents. <laughs> and so here, here's a deal about the South. Everybody, everybody goes to church. It's the Bible Belt. It, Christianity is cultural. It's traditional. I, I didn't grow up as a Christian at all. Uh, but about my family, traditional black family, we went to church uh, because it was our culture and because it was our tradition. And I, I can tell you, I don't remember anything I learned in church the few times that I went growing up. And in fact, as I got older, the, the only reason why I went to church was because my grandmother wanted me to go to church. She wanted me, I, I used to sing growing up. Everybody on my mom's side sings. And I went to church because my grandmother wanted me to sing. And that's the truth. And so here's the norm. If you are in the South, uh, church is normal. And so if I'm an American, of course, I'm a Christian. That's the that's the thought about Christianity when you grow up in the South. And so you get many people who have heard all this little stuff about Jesus, but but really don't know. Uh, enough about him to uh, articulate who he is. They've been inoculated to who Jesus is. They've been inoculated to the gospel. What, what happens when you get inoculated? It's like a vaccine when you're a, when you're a young kid. It makes you immune to, to catching the, the disease, but it doesn't mean that you know anything about that, about that disease. And so we have this whole set of people, um, perhaps some of you in here, uh, who are like this with Jesus and the gospel, inoculated to it. They're conf- they, they haven't been confronted with it. They're around it all the time, but yet they, uh, they think they're, they're good to go just because they show up and go to church. All right, so if you're here with us uh, for the first time, we are in, a gospel, in the Gospel of John. We've been in it since February, and we're inching our way through it. And uh, John does some neat things in this, in this text, and what he's doing is trying to help us believe. He's trying to show in many different ways, primarily through the miracles that Jesus did and what Jesus said about himself, that Jesus is God and He shows us all these you know, miracles and just sensational stuff that Jesus does. 
Uh, in chapter six, chapter six is a is a I, I always say this. It's a transitional chapter because Jesus goes from ministering and, and presenting himself to the masses to focusing on those 12 disciples that he would call apostles who would go on after his death and resurrection and, and start the early church. And so in in chapter six, what the gospel writer John is doing is he's showing multiple times Jesus confronting all these disciples and, and these are some of the things that he said in chapter six. He says, don't chase food that spoils, but seek that which endures to eternal life. You ever guys, y'all ever had, um, I want to say you haven't have drunk it, but have you smelled spoiled milk? So uh, we had a men's breakfast yesterday. Absolutely fun. So guys, if you're here and you haven't come to our men's breakfast, you got to come because it's good food. And I mean, whenever you get dudes around just talking, it's, it's entertaining, actually. So um, my wife and I are cleaning up. And the garbage disposal just like jams. I mean, it just all that food, it wouldn't it wouldn't do anything. And so my wife opened the cabinet and this this putrid smell that came out. It's like, oh, that's nasty. I mean, we're going to have to get this thing checked out. This is what Jesus is saying. I mean, could you imagine yourself not just inhaling, but just like eating food like that? He's saying don't chase stuff like that. Because it's not going to be any good for you. In fact, it's going to be harmful to you. He said, I've got food that you don't know about. And it's, it's food that will give you a life that you've never lived. He says in John 6.35, and this really is the, 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 the focal verse of this chapter. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Life is a, a mini theme in the gospel of John. There's, there's two kinds of life that John presents to us. Uh, two, two Greek words that mean life in the New Testament. One is bios. It's like the life of a plant. The other is zoe. My daughter's name is Zoe. It's, it's the God kind of life. It's the life that only God can give you. What's Jesus saying here? He says, I've got, I've got you, you. You're looking for physical bread. I mean, of course, that nourishes you. It sustains you. It keeps you going. You, you need it. You got to have it. But I've got this God kind of life that's going to keep you going to eternal life. It's a life that you've never experienced before, but I'm I'm offering it to you just for your asking. He goes on to say in John uh, 6, 54 and 55, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is is true drink. And so, you know, this horde of people, these disciples, they're they're listening to Jesus intently and they're 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 interpreting him literally. And of course, Jesus is speaking metaphorically. He doesn't mean, all right, I'm offering myself, at, you know, so that you can uh, be accountable. He, he's saying something completely different. You know, as I read this, sometimes I expect Jesus to like clean up his words. Like, come on, Jesus, you got to like make that right. Make it so that we can all all understand it. But Jesus, I mean, he, he feels no unction to do that. He doesn't clean up his words. He doesn't over explain what he's talking about because he's speaking spiritual words and those who are spiritual are going to get it. He keeps repeating this. I mean, eat my flesh, drink my drink my blood. And and these these disciples, they're saying like, dang, that's like that's a hard saying. What do they do? They turn around and walk away. But what's Jesus point? He's he's confronting them, confronting them in regards to who he is, what he's come to do for them individually. And his confrontation requires a uh, requires a response that brings us to our text today. The question before us is is simply this. Have you been confronted with Jesus? Have you personally been confronted with Jesus such that you have had to make a decision to follow him or not follow him? That's what the text is bringing us to uh, today. And that's what I want to offer you in my sermon today. Jesus wants to be one who gives you life. Not just life that would make a plant grow, but but Zoe life, a, a God kind of life that that endures to eternal life. What he's saying in this in this in this sentence is you can't trust anything else to satisfy you. Later on, Jesus will say, I- I'm the only way. I'm the way, the truth and the life. And the words that Jesus confronts us with, uh, you know, these words that eat my flesh, drink, uh, drink my blood. They're not literal words. They're metaphorical. And he's, of course, he's giving, he's saying, uh, 
I'm, I'm the you can't trust anything beyond me to, to, to truly satisfy you. And those words are as hard for us today as they were for the disciples during the first century, because what this what this really means is it's this all or nothing challenge that he's giving us. He's like all or nothing. You, you follow me and you follow me wholeheartedly. You take all of me inside you living, uh, you know, me on the inside living out through you or, or you, don't, you don't have anything to do with me. Verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, uh, heard it, what did they hear? They heard his, his saying that uh, they're supposed to, he's the bread of life and they're supposed to eat his flesh and drink his blood. So when many of his disciples heard that, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Um, two things that are, I think I should point out in this particular text. First of all, notice that John is calling these people disciples. There's thousands of people following him. Okay, We don't know how many from the, uh, when he fed the 5,000 people. Actually, the, the fifteen to 20,000 people are still following him. But there's got to be a lot of people. It's not just his 12 disciples. It's a lot of people. Um, interestingly, the, I mean, what does the word disciple mean? The word disciple means someone who follows, someone who follows a master. And, and so these people, all of them, are sitting at the feet of Jesus. They're listening to his words. They're perhaps uh, emulating what he's telling them to do in some form or fashion. And, and the, the gospel writer John is calling them true disciples of Jesus, or at least a semblance of that. What we'll find out is Jesus is going to, to, to do a little separating here. He's calling them disciples, but, but honestly, they're pseudo-disciples. What we'll find out is this is a test of sorts, a, a test for his 12, the ones who, uh, who will be left standing there when, when this crowd just turns their backs and walks away. But who are these people? I think when when John says disciple, he's reminding us this is the same fickle crowd that's been following Jesus ever since he went down to Jerusalem, did some miracles, uh, pushed the money changers and the and the people selling animals out of the out of the temple, and they start following around because they thought you know they find out something special about Jesus. And one minute they love Jesus, one minute they don't. It's the same fickle crowd that's that's been following him all the way. The second thing I think that's uh, important for us to 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 understand a little bit is, is this word hard saying. There's several places in the Bible, not just here, that we learn that uh, a prophet or, or God himself, in this case, Jesus, has said something hard. And so when the disciples are saying, well, gosh, Jesus, this is a hard saying, they're saying two things. First, they're saying, man, I, I can't even get my mind around what you're trying to say. Eat your flesh and drink your blood. What in the world are you talking about? That's the first kind of hard. The second kind of heart they're, they're saying is, uh, is, is harsh. It's like, gosh, Jesus, this is harsh to my ears. In other words, uh, it was something they just, they couldn't, they, they didn't want to consume it. More importantly, they were offended by it. And Jesus knew that. Verse 61. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? So if you're over five here, uh, you have experienced grumbling because you have grumbled. Um, if you are a parent and you've got an over five-year-old in your house, then you probably experience some level of grumbling every single day, and it's directed toward you. All right, so what, what, do, we, what do we do when we grumble? Uh, it's like this low-level whining. You know, and words are, words are behind that. It's, it's you complaining uh, kind of below your breath when you don't get your way. And we whine all the time. And here's the thing. This crowd, they were known for their whining. Some of y'all looking at me, y'all are whiners. I know it. Not to me, but like to the people around you. So in verse 41, if you'll turn back in John, verse 41, um, it, it says, so the Jews grumble about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. So they're thinking, well, wait a minute. This is Joe, Joseph and Mary's son. I mean, he's got brothers and sisters, and he's telling us that, that he's the bread of life. I mean, who does he think he is? And then in verse 52, uh, the word says, the Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? 
So, I mean, they are really disturbed by this. They're disturbed by his words. And there's probably a few in the crowd saying, well, I mean, there's got to be something to it. I mean, look what he's doing. Look what he's saying. Aren't his words like tickling your ears? But then it's like, I mean, have you ever heard anybody say, eat my flesh and drink my blood? Doesn't that sound crazy to you? I mean, they're like bickering amongst themselves. And then later on, and we'll, we'll get to this verse here in a second. This all boils down to this. Where's verse 64? There it is. But there were some who did not believe. And so all this grumbling is, is really, it's stirring them up. And, and, and the, the end of it is they just, they just didn't believe. Why were they all grumbling? We, I mean, they were offended. They were offended at what Jesus was presenting to them. They were offended at what he was suggesting. Um, let me talk about this word offense here for a second. You know, there's a huge difference between an offense that's given and an offense taken. You know, lots of times... We take offense at things people do or say when they don't intend to offend us at all. And I would tell you, Christians are notorious for this. Let me give you an example from our, my own life. This, ain't, this, isn't a good, this isn't a good example, but it's the only one I got. So, you know, one of the things our family likes to do when, you know, just a Sunday afternoon, sometimes in the week when the kids get out of school, is we'll come right here to Hayfield. Me and Jonathan play tennis. Uh, Zoe and David might play along with us for a little bit. That's usually comical. And then, I'm sorry, David. And then Larissa, you know, Larissa's like going for it on the track and the bleachers and stuff. And sure enough, when we come here to Hayfield, sometimes even when we go to Lane, that's Zoe's elementary school a mile that way, um, there's these, you know, between late teen and young adult men that are out there and they're balling and they're doing what guys do when they come out and kind of hang out. And they're like cussing and saying some, some vile stuff. And, you know, the parent in me is like, oh, don't you see I got like kids here and I don't want them learning those words. Although my my boys already know them because they go to this school and those kids go to this school. So I was like, that's what high schoolers are doing now. And so I got this 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 like conflict is happening in me. I'm like a parent. I, I want, you know, Zoe, close your ears. You know, but if I make it, if I if I bring attention to it, then she's going to like, what do they say? Um, and there's something in me that also says, well, I mean, these are teenagers. Surely they know they shouldn't be like dropping F-bombs and all the stuff that they're doing out here in the public. But then I like come to my senses and I was like, think of it. all right, Jeff. So probably these guys are unregenerate sinners. And what do unregenerate sinners do? They do that kind of stuff. And so if you're going to go to a location where unregenerate sinners don't have the Holy Spirit are, what are you going to subject yourself to? You're going to subject yourself to cussing. Cussing and frivolity, you know, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Um, I was offended. I was offended. And I don't even know if I had a right to be fed. You know, the parent in me says, like, they should have sense. But then, you know, it's, it's the world. And this is what we should expect in the world. You know, sometimes we're, we're too easily offended by the things that should not offend us. Y'all can tell I'm, I'm, I'm conflicted on that one. What would you do if you're a parent? Don't tell me. After the service. There's another side of this, this coin, though, that, that here it is. Sometimes we can do exactly the right thing, but a, a, a person receiving our right thing might still get offended. And that really is what's going on with Jesus and these disciples. Jesus hasn't done anything wrong. He's presenting who he is. He's coming with, with spiritual words, and they didn't have the wherewithal to receive what he was saying. Um, what are they offended about? We've already discussed this, but let me rehearse it. One, three, three things. One more time. Their expectation at this point is Jesus is going to meet their physical need. Uh, Jesus, I, I, gotta, I got something wrong with me. Can you come heal me? Jesus, I'm hungry. Can you come give me something to eat? He's, he's met their need before, and they're, they're assuming that because he's a miracle-working guy, he's going to do these same things for them to in, in perpetuity. The, the, uh, and, and what he does is at some point, Jesus, in chapter 6, he says, all right, dudes, like, Stop it. I'm, I'm not going to keep doing this. Uh, I, I, I'm not going to give you physical food anymore. I'm come, I've come to give you spiritual food. I'm going to give you food for your soul. And they didn't like that. Secondly, back in verse 32 of chapter 6, um, Jesus kind of insinuates that, that he's greater than Moses. And so uh, he reminds them, so, you know, God gave you manna in the wilderness but, it, you know, it, well, Moses gave you, man, you think Moses gave you manna in the wilderness. Really, it wasn't Moses. He was just, you know, Moses was just a conduit. It was God doing that. And guess what? 
I, I've come here as God to provide, provide not just manna from heaven. I am the manna myself. And, you know, again, they're thinking this is Jesus, son of Mary and Joseph, who's got brothers and sisters, lives in Galilee. There ain't no way he can be all he's saying he is. And they were offended. But by far the biggest offense was the scandal of him telling them to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Now, this is a special word. Uh, it's, it's, the, it's the Greek word uh, uh, scandalizo, which is our English word scandal, to take offense. And what this reminds us of, it's not a direct correlation to this verse, but anytime you see these words, take offense, scandal, really the, it's, it's pointing to the scandal of the cross. The, the cross is an offense to us because the cross tells us that uh, that we can't come to Jesus. We can't come to God in our own strength. You can't pay enough money. You can't do enough good deeds. You can't be nice enough to merit God's favor for yourself. You know, a lot of times this is the way our society is. Uh, some people are, are a little perturbed that we we allow the Ten Commandments, the moral law to be displayed in our in our government courthouses and stuff. But I wouldn't say any, no one hates the Ten Commandments. There, uh, there are very few people who get mad about baby Jesus being talked about at Christmas time. There are very few people who get mad with us when we focus on Jesus during the resurrection. But when we say that Jesus is the only way to heaven, people just get all ate up about it. When we talk about substitutionary atonement, that Jesus died in my place for my sin on the cross, people just get all up in arms because what we're saying to that is you cannot earn your way to God. You have to go through Jesus. It's just one of the things that gets us all mad. Verse 62. This is what this leads to. It's the spirit who gives life. That's verse 63. I even got my glasses on, folks. I can't see. Verse 62, then what is it? Uh, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? And so coming off this idea of, of his words offending the, uh, the disciples, Jesus is trying to give them a different perspective. And he shows them a picture, uh, a kingly picture of a royal figure ascending to back where he was before. And so Jesus is saying, all right, so check this out. Suppose you see me. Um, in my rightful place. I'm rising up to heaven. I'm sitting on my throne, clothed in glory, surrounded by angels, reigning over the cosmos. I mean, would you be offended then? And the rhetorical answer obviously is, is absolutely not. I think any of us in here, whether you know, like, love Jesus or not, if you were to, to get a glimpse of God in his glory, all of us would fall on our knees and, and, and there would be a joy that you had ne- you've never experienced before or, or perhaps uh, a wrath. But you wouldn't be offended. And so he's bringing us to light. He's trying to, to help them see a, a better perspective. He's trying to help them see that in the future, he's going to say some things that are going to offend, him, offend them. But what he's saying right there, uh, should, what he's revealing about his true, shell, true self shouldn't offend them. Verse 63. It's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Stop right there. So the very very first part of verse 63 is reminding the the disciples that there's nothing in your flesh that can help you at all. Uh, If you read the New Testament, you see the word flesh a lot. Now, now John is using it differently than, than the apostle Paul would use it. When the apostle Paul, who was an apostle to the the believing Gentiles, uh, what used the word flesh, he's meaning a, a Christian who still sins. In other words, that part of you that's not submitted to God and that God is still, you know, you're still crucifying it, bringing it under the submission of Christ. What, uh, you know, John here is writing to, to Jews that, that they don't have the revelation of the Spirit in them. They're following Jesus, seeing some cool things, but they have not yet um, received him as their, their Savior and Lord. So there's, there's, uh, these are worldly, sinful people. That's what he means by, by flesh. So this is what the disciples were offended, uh, offended by. And, and that's why they didn't receive his gospel. 
because they didn't have anything in them of the flesh that were that were helping them to understand Jesus spiritual words in a spiritual light. They heard his teaching with worldly minds and they responded with Jesus with proud carnal hearts. And sometimes we do that as well. Uh, The latter half of verse 63 says this. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. So what's the sure sign of 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 you and I that that we get it, that that we're on track with Jesus, that we're following along with with who God is and what he's come to do in the world? Well, you have the spirit and 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 there's this 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 pull to to esteem God and his word. There's, I'm not saying you like you're like eating the word all the time, but I, there's an appreciation for what it for what it says, uh, and and what it's presenting to you, and and the two things go together. The spirit and the word are are eternally connected to each other, and and really they're pointing you both uh, to Jesus Himself. Uh, the spirit is the divine agent; He's the one that awakens your soul and makes you willing to receive the word itself. And of course, the word is the divine instrument. The, the, the word is the infallible, inspired word that that works to to bring you to salvation. Both of these uh, are, are tied together and, and they're doing the, the work to make us come alive. And so how is it that the spirit and the word bring you to life such that you have life in Jesus? The life he's talking about right here. Here's a, here's a few uh, words from Scripture. James chapter one, verse 18 of his own will, he brought us forth. By the word of God, that we should be a kind of first fruits uh, of his creatures. Next verse. Here's what Peter says. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Next, the writer of Hebrews says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And the Apostle Paul says this in Second Corinthians. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And so the Holy Spirit makes us alive through the word of God. The spirit comes with the word and he uses the word to, to pierce our hearts. To change the disposition of our souls. Verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the very beginning who those were and who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. What verse 64 and 65 are conveying to us is just a a subliminal way of saying Jesus is deity. I mean, Jesus is God. What we see here are are two specific attributes. One is omniscience that, that says God. I mean, he knows everything going on. And specifically, we see foreknowledge here. We see Jesus' ability to know things that are going on ahead of time. Um, this verse also echoes what Jesus says in John chapter uh, 6, verse 44. Now, John Scott read this uh, for us last week. And uh, this is interesting because this actually came up in my community group this week. Someone was reading this verse, and uh, let me read the verse first. No one can come to, uh, come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on that last day. And a person in our community group kind of kind of paused and they said, well, it, it sounds like God is is choosing. And and not only that, it sounds like he's responsible for drawing us to himself. And I mean, do, how do you read this when you I mean, how do you interpret this when you read it? And I you know, my response was, I, I think that's exactly what the, the scripture is saying. And, and sometimes we read verses like this and it challenges our preconceived notion that I can just be walking on the street. I can have this epiphany and I can decide I'm going to serve God today. I'm going to go to church and I'm going to be a worshiper of Jesus. And this verse challenges us. That, that's actually not how it comes. God, the Holy Spirit, draws us, makes God aware to us, opens up our spirit to receive him. And, I mean, God is the initiator um, without fail. He is the initiator. Um, the, the doctrine that I would encapsulate this verse and verse uh, 64 and 65 in is called the doctrine of predestination. And there's a lot of um, consternation about what this actually means. Specifically, it means the foreordination of all that will happen, especially regarding salvation. Um, some people take offense because they, uh, they know 
a predestination to, to suggest that God chooses some for heaven, but he also chooses some for hell. And my response to that would be simply um, that is uh, that is what the Bible is. The Bible professes. Let me give it to you a little bit more humbly. Salvation is by grace alone. What's grace? It's God giving you what you don't deserve. Do you do you deserve heaven? Do you deserve hell? Salvation is a result of the unmerited gift of God. And so what verses like this tell us is that we are absolutely incapable of coming to Jesus in our own flesh. We need God's help even to have faith to come to him. That's what Ephesians 2.8.9 really conveys to us. Ephesians 2.8.9 says, for by grace, God giving me what I don't deserve, for by, by God giving me what I don't deserve, I have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. What's the gift of God? My very faith, not as a result of works. What does that mean? It is, what's our temptation? I want to do something to earn my way. It's just in us. I want to go and do something good or give some money or be charitable, help an old lady across the street. Yeah, I want to do something like that to, to earn my way to God and, and merit heaven. And this verse says, you can't do that. Even your very faith is given, you, uh, is given to you by God. Why? So that you won't be able to boast. Salvation is received through faith alone. Faith itself is a gracious gift of God. One scholar said, faith is not something we contribute to God, but something that God contributes to us by the ministry of the Holy Spirit to bring us to salvation. Verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now, I, I read verse 66, and honestly, that's like one of the scariest verses in the Bible to me. Firstly, because it's like 666. Y'all see that? John, I, John 666. Now, uh, in the original manuscript, in the Greek, there, there were no number numbers there. Those were added uh, uh, a century or so later. So there's no association with that number and what the Bible says about that number. It's a sign of Satan and all that stuff in regards to this. But it is interesting that we see that, you know, under that 666, the, this idea that people will, will walk away. And so this verse is, gives us reason to pause because it says that some of us, when confronted with the gospel, it's going to happen. We're going to look Jesus right in the face and regardless of what we have May, what, what worship we may have professed, we're going to turn around and walk away from him. And these are people like these disciples who had seen him do some great things. Make a person walk who couldn't walk. Open eyes that, that couldn't see. Um, feed thousands of people with just a little bit of fish and a couple pieces of bread. Do some incredible things. And they looked at Jesus. They said, you know what? What you're saying is too hard for me. I'm just going to leave now. This says to us that the line between false and true disciples is always drawn by the teaching of biblical truth. That if you read the Bible, the Bible, like the Hebrews verse, it will divide you. It will divide your soul and your spirit. It will show you where you truly are and you'll be you'll be forced to make a decision. That's what the scripture is doing for us and to us. Here's another perspective on, on this verse and really this whole passage. Um, remember how Jesus... Uh, one of the specific things Jesus is doing in this in this text is he's he's forcing the true disciples to, to come up. That's what he's doing way back when he um, when he uh, crossed the Sea of Galilee. All these people followed him. He went up on a mountain and all these people were there. And he pulls Philip and Nathaniel aside and say, look at all these jokers out here. How are we going to feed them? What was he doing? He was testing Philip and Nathaniel to see if they had faith enough to, at that point, to, to know who Jesus was, that he could pull that miracle off. And then what happens next? Jesus sends those disciples closest to him. Um, he sends them out on the Sea of Galilee. The roughest night is a storm, and they panic. And what is he doing? He's testing their faith. The same thing is going on here. Jesus is, is pruning all these disciples. He's confronting them 
uh, he's confronting specifically those closest to him to see if they're going to be like the masses or if they're going to follow him no matter what. And we see, we see their response in the, in the latter half of this text. And we'll close it out right here. Verse 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Verse 70. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of, of Judas, the son of Simon, Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And so Jesus looks at his, his twelve closest friends. Um, I can see him just opening his hands up, shrugging his shoulders like, all right, guys, they're all walking away. You want to go too? And that, that had to have been a poignant moment in, in their life, but also in Jesus', uh, Jesus ministry. Now, some there's some important words here. Uh, if you go back to the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke, they, they have a rendition of what Peter is saying in these words. In Matthew 16, in Mark chapter 8, Luke chapter 9, Jesus pulls his disciples, uh, his closest ones to him, and he starts asking them questions, probing them. Who do, who do people say that I am? And they come up with answers. Some say you're John the Baptist, resurrected from the dead. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're just a great prophet. And then he keeps prodding. Well, who do you say that I am? And then Peter comes with these words. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. So this is a John. This is John's rendition of Peter making that great confession. And what Peter is doing here is he's giving high Christology. He's he's espousing. This is who the Christ is in these few words that he says. And he says four things. Firstly, he says, Lord, now y'all are military. Uh, The uh, the common vernacular of, of this would be to say, sir. And, you know, sometimes a person deserves sir because you respect them. And sometimes you're just saying it because they just wearing the rank. Right. So basically, Lenore, we would never do that to y'all. We would like we would honor you, sir. Yes, sir. No, sir. No excuse, sir. Um, that was a West Point thing right there. All right. So this is this is Peter and not just Peter. He's representative of all these disciples. He gets it. He not only gets who Jesus is, but he gets I mean, the the high position that he is in and this Lord is is it would be likened to him calling him Yahweh, the the that esteemed uh, four letter word. Y W H W. I think that's right. Yahweh. Yeah. That that we see in the Old Testament, the Jews didn't even want to say God's name. They revered him so much. They came up with this little uh, four letter Hebrew uh, acronym. He's saying Jesus is the divine Lord. Secondly, he says, to whom shall we go? And this is him acknowledging the uniqueness of who Jesus was as as their savior. This is Peter more importantly saying, you know, Jesus, I'm making a choice to follow you. I'm not going to run away like all these other disciples. I'm going to run to you. You know, there's, there's there's two choices we can make in life. We can run to Jesus or away from Jesus. When you run to, uh, away from Jesus, you're never being neutral. A lot of times people say, you know what? I just don't believe in God. I don't believe in any God. But the truth is, all of us are serving some kind of God. If your God isn't a true God, you're, you're serving a false God. You're serving your car, your, your money, your retirement account, uh, your house, uh, another person. We all create other false gods. And here's the deal with false gods. All, all false gods never fail to fail. At some point, they're going to fail you. More to the point, this is what Peter was doing. Peter is acknowledging, Jesus, what you're saying is, is absolutely hard. I don't, I, don't, I don't profess to get it, but where else do I have to go? Your words don't fail me. They don't let you down when you get it. They won't crush me when you fail. And what does Peter do? Peter eventually fails, and he's a living witness that God's words will not eventually crush him. Thirdly, he says, you have the words of eternal life. And what he's saying here, back to this idea of Zoe life, the God kind of life, he's saying, Jesus, you are the true giver of life. And this was the lesson, really, of all the miracles that Jesus does throughout his ministry, but more to the point in, in the Gospel of John. And so Jesus, this Jesus who can feed this huge crowd with a few fish and a little bit of bread, can also meet the needs of our souls. What does Jesus say about himself? He says, I am the very bread of life. Lastly, he says, you are the Holy One of God. Um, this reminds me, sometimes we put our faith in abstract things. Um, uh, I, was, uh, in, I was at Fort Bragg this week, 
I was uh, testifying for a military trial, and I had a chance to witness to this. I mean, I was stuck in a room, and so I was witnessing to this one young 19-year-old, and uh, he wasn't, he, he, I don't know, he wasn't a Christian, but he had faith. He said, I got faith in faith. I don't have faith in God, but I got a faith in faith. And I was like, well, you know, you can't have faith in faith. Faith deserves an object. You have to have an object of your faith. And so this is what Peter's saying. Jesus, you're, you're the object of my faith, and it's, and it's, my, and it's the object that, that saves me. You are the one that saves me. And that really is why John wrote this book. John says in, in chapter 20, verse 31, uh, I've written these things so that you might believe. Not believe in faith itself, but believe in the object of your faith, that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ, the Son of God, and that having believed, I might have life, Zoe life, in his name. And that's the idea we're forced to reflect on as we conclude chapter 6. Um, the, the confrontational question that Jesus asks is way back in verse 67, and he says this, do you want to go away as well? And as we think about all that's going on in our country right now, especially with the Supreme Court uh, verdict on marriage this past Friday, this is what we have to come to grips with. The world that we live in is not following Jesus. Y'all know that? The world that we live in is not following Jesus. The teaching of the Bible makes people scoff and ridicule what we believe. The gospel of Jesus and the way, he, uh, the way of life that he calls us to live are out of fashion. But, but what are you to do? There's, there's a couple options. You could, you could go back to the life you lived before. You could do like these disciples. They, they just turned their back, walked away, went back to whatever we were doing before. You could go pick a different religion, one that won't be persecuted. You could go to a kinder, gentler religion. I won't name them. I don't want to offend. But one that would uh, let you do what you want to do and make whatever you think of God and his word. Because that really is what's going on in our country. We've forsaken what God says and we've made we've made God what we want him to be. This is who I think God is. God is a God of love. He loves everybody. He wants me to do whatever I want to do. Right? I didn't mean to start preaching. You might take a more liberal approach to the Bible to avoid all the heart teaching and sayings that remind you of the cross. But here's the thing. Where will you find forgiveness for your sins if you turn your back on Jesus? And that was what these disciples did. I'll close with this. I can imagine these. I can imagine Jesus watching as his huge, huge crowd of newly branded unbelievers turns their backs on him and, and walks away. You know, this text helps us know Jesus knew this was going to happen. Actually, his words were bringing it about. He was, he was, he was, he was letting the tear and the wheat live together, and this, he was like saying, all right, so if you're not going to follow me, go ahead and go. He, he was helping bring that about. But I can't help but to think that this made Jesus sad. He's seeing people who had followed him for probably months, perhaps a year, he probably knew names, faces, had played with kids, and hordes of people. Families are turning their backs, walking away. And, you know, I, I'm a Calvinist. I, I believe in predestination. But I would tell you, the other side of this idea of, of God foreordaining people to, uh, to, to, to faith is this idea of uh, God wants everyone to be saved. First Timothy 2.4. He does. God doesn't wish anybody to go to hell, which which says and it's a conundrum to us. We don't understand it. We don't have the right mind. There's two things going on at the same time. God, he elects. He does. He chooses and he brings us to faith. He 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 starts the process that brings us to faith. But there's a human responsibility. It is it's at the same time. It's all all mixed up in there. So this is what I think this word says to us. Let's let Jesus words confront us today. Have you been confronted with Jesus? That's what he's trying to do. And so, believer, as you come to communion today, before you even come up, as you're sitting in your seat, even before the music starts playing, have you been confronted with, with Jesus? Have you been in this bubble where you've been around Christianity all your life and you know a little bit about Jesus such that you think that you come to church and raise your hand, sing a song, that you really know him? Is Jesus your bread of life? Have you... Have you really eaten his flesh and drank his blood? 
That's what we do when we come to, come to communion. We don't believe like Catholics that this is transubstantiation. These actually become the blood and the, the, the body of Christ. But they're symbols. They're, they're symbols of the gospel, the good news for us. What's the good news? Is that I can't earn my way to heaven, but Jesus has done it for me. And so when I put my faith in him, that he's lived a perfect life because I can't, and he's gone to, to the cross to die in my place for my sin, to absorb the wrath of God that I deserve, that's just good news for me. So when I take that communion, I'm, I'm, I'm holding this bread up saying, Jesus, your body is flat. It's, it's food for me. And, and be grateful. And then take the juice, take the bread, dip it in the juice, and be reminded that his blood has been spilled for you. It forgives you of your sin. It reconciles you to God, and it reminds you of the gospel. That's all, Stan. If you're not a Christian here today, perhaps some of the words that you've heard in Scripture would confront you. And what's your response? Well, you, you, you choose to follow Jesus or you don't. Those, those are the two responses. I would love to, to pray with you, to, to talk more with you, and I'll be up here at the end to pray. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. May it not return void. God, we thank you for the opportunity to be confronted by your gospel. Sometimes words that you say are hard. But I think hard words are good for us because they, they bring us to a point of decision. So both Christian and non-Christian today, would you bring us to the point where we have to make a, a, a choice? In a world that, um, that turns their backs and walks away from you, would you challenge us today? Who will you serve? Who will you follow? May we be like Peter, that in the midst of probably being a little confused about what was going on, Peter chose to say, Lord, where shall we go? You have the words of life. We've come to believe that you are the Holy One of God. May that be our confession today. And we pray this in Jesus' great name.